Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Before I introduce uh, my guest in my home, I wanted to do a few housekeeping things. This is the first podcast we're releasing with the new soundboard. I've had the original soundboard for a while, but you have been messaging me that the volume hasn't been very good. So my podcast guy, Tom Garbett, got me a new soundboard, and hopefully this will work. I'll push all the right buttons. Um, But more importantly, you'll be able to hear our guests better. And so that's the first thing. So thanks for hanging in there on prior podcasts as our sound has had some challenges. Um, And if you have any suggestions like that, technical suggestions, please, you know, message me because this is a group effort and I want to do the very best job I can. Um, And I appreciate you leaving reviews where you listen to the podcast. There's no sponsors for these podcasts, but the reviews help connect other listeners. My guest on today's podcast, who's in my home on this sunny July afternoon, is my friend Daniel Carter. Welcome to the podcast, Daniel. Oh, I thank you very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, Daniel's got his own recording channel, so I'm kind of, it's a new thing where he's got his own track, and I'm just going to be watching to make sure his volume's where it needs to be. But to introduce Daniel, he is 64, um, very, so we're both um, kind of up there. I'm 59, Daniel's 64, and so two of us sitting behind a mark on a soundboard is stretching at least my skills. But... I have an extra, feel an extra level of responsibility because Daniel has an amazing story to tell and has given so much to society and our church that I just want to do this podcast justice. And I, we said a prayer before we started, and I just pray that Daniel will be able to share the story that he has. No one can tell Daniel's story better, obviously, than Daniel. But Daniel's story is a story that I think will help all of us better come together the same human family. There's so much divisiveness in our society right now, but the principles that Daniel can share and teach us can help us come together. Daniel is um, no longer participating in the church. Um, He is married to his husband, Gail, and I'm going to say his last name, Franson? Yeah, Franson, with a D. With an E, Gail Franson. Gail is not with us today. He's with us in the sense he's alive. I don't want to infer that he's gone to the other side, but they are married, um, got married in 2016. We'll talk about that. Gail um, has a friend, a relative in my home ward, Michelle Cannon, married to George Cannon. They were the first ones that made me aware of of Daniel and Gail and suggested that perhaps they'd be a, a helpful on a podcast. So I'm grateful for Michelle and George in our ward making me aware of um, Daniel and Gail. Um, Daniel and Gail um, were married to women prior to being married to each other. They have six children, 16 grandchildren. Daniel worked for the LDS Church for 27 years. Um, and I'll talk, let him introduce what he did. Um, but he has done so much good. When I mentioned his name to my wife, my wife knows exactly who Daniel is, and many of you do too for the good work he's done within the LDS church. Daniel, even though he has left the church and doesn't participate in the church, um, still has a soft spot for the church. And even though it's been a difficult journey for him and he's felt a lot of anger and pain, perhaps, he is not trying to lead others out of the church. He's trying to honor everybody's paths. And so this is a podcast, yeah, it's somebody who's left the church in a same-sex marriage. And there may be listeners that say, well, I'm not going to listen to that story. 
but I'd invite you maybe to continue listening. Um, this is a podcast, really, as I said, to try to try to draw us together, the same human family, even in differences, and to find common ground. Because I think our loving Heavenly Father likes it when we not only find community within our own group, but find community across different groups that share common goals and want the best for people. Daniel um, had a suicide attempt in 20, 2005, and we're going to talk about that. And that's really what this is, path to healing is what happened then and what happened subsequent to that. So if you are suicidal or trying to help someone that's suicidal, um, this might be a podcast because of Daniel sharing his story that will help you. Because his story is full of hope, it's full of self-healing, it's full, it's full of self-love, and it's full of um, coming to peace with his life experience and who he is. Anything I've said so far, Daniel, as far as your bio that you want to correct? No, you've done a wonderful job. <laughs> and Daniel and I both served missions in England. I was up in Manchester. I got there in 79, 1979, and Daniel finished in 1978? 77. 77. So, so we're not too far from each other. We're not too far apart um, in that experience. Um, Daniel was on Jill Hazard Rhodes' podcast. Um, Jill does a great job. That's called Human Stories, I believe. And so you could hear more of Daniel's story on Jill's podcast. And this is just another chance for Daniel to tell his story. Let's talk f first about um, your what you did for the church. Introduce um, you are the church sheet publisher Share with our listeners, and you did that for 27 years. Share yeah. with our listeners what you did for the church. Well, essentially, in 1989, I was hired by the church to uh, typeset music and uh, prepare sheet music for publication in English uh, for hymn books, children's song books, magazine music, and other, other sheet music publications that may uh, be released by the church. It also included... Uh, it also included uh, uh, a lot of foreign languages. Out of 300 languages that were approved, we worked in those years in at least 145 or so of those languages. And so <clears throat> essentially what I did was I not only typeset the music and published it, but I helped create the music publishing system that the church uses today. And I, and I had a lot of brilliant people helping me to uh, to forge that ground as well. And I worked with uh, translators all over the world, and uh, they would do the translations for the music. We would uh, receive them, and then we would uh, type the words into the music, set up the templates, and begin publishing the music in their languages. And, uh, and I think that we, by the time I retired... I did a quick estimate about the time I retired in 2016, and um, I estimated that I published over 100,000 pages of music in 145 languages, uh, right around there. It could be as many as 150,000 pages, but I don't think anyone is going to go back and do the, you know, page by page count. It was based on this many hymn books, that many children's song books, and this much magazine music over the course of 27 years. And if you estimate that, it turns out to be 100,000 plus pages. It's really cool. So <clears throat> it, was, it was a good career. 
It's it a really great was. career. And I just wonder how many hundreds of thousands of lives are better off because of the work you did. Music yes. seems to be this thing, God's gift to the planet that brings us together more than divides us and helps us feel his love. Any thoughts on that? Yes. Well, the one thing in the darkest, darkest days of my life, I had my job. And although I was at odds with church policy and doctrine on certain issues, um, I took great comfort and I took my job very seriously because I was one of the few who got to fill the world with good music every day that I went to work, every day. And I did not take that lightly. And uh, even though as uh, virtually knowing that I was gay from a very, very young age, I five years old or whatever it was, you know, I, it was no surprise to anybody when I really, truly did finally come out later in 2016 after I retired. It, they would kind of look at me funny and I would say, OK, you can't tell me this is a shock. You you, you just can't tell me this. And uh, so it's true. They said, well, it's in a way it makes sense. And then I said, yeah, it makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? <laughs> and so. um <clears throat> But yes, um, I had a, I had a good career, and it wasn't easy because there are lots of politics at the church, and uh, uh, they assumed that they understood what I did exactly and how I did it and where it went and how how it affected people. A lot of the uh, upper management and middle management actually did not understand, and as we corresponded with the areas and they learned more, then we had to they had a learning curve as well. And so I was always trying to represent the translators and the members out on the field, listening to them and coming to these meetings. And the GAs would kind of look at me cross-eyed and say, but we don't think that's what the Lord wants. And I said, I think you need to go back and check with the members and find out what the Lord wants. So it was, it was that kind of thing. There was a little bit of friction at times. And uh, I managed to keep my job because at the end of the day at these meetings and so on, I would simply say... Um, Thank you for listening. I've said my piece. Now, what is it that you want me to do? And in frustration, they would look at me and say, well, we want you to do this. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And I would go do it and wouldn't say another word until the next flare up. And then they would come back and say, but, you know, we think it's this way. And I said, well, it isn't that way, is it? The facts are reading differently, aren't they? And so there was always a, there's always a learning curve. But the point that I that I love most is that I got to represent the members and their needs and to fill those needs with the music that we had available. And so it was a good, it was a good job. Talk about the song that you composed, I believe is the right vocabulary that's in our current hymn book. As now we take the sacrament number hymn number 169 in our present hymn book, um, I understand that it will probably be included in the new hymn book from a few of my colleagues who are now on the church music committee. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. The way that hymn came together was um, it was about, uh, well, it was the summer of 1980. And I had become very good friends with the church music chairman, Michael Moody. And he invited me to go to lunch with him one day. And we were going to talk about uh my composition. And he said, I, I would like you to compose uh, a song 
um, a, a children's song, and it's the it would be the Blazer Class song in back in those days. And I said, well, I'm also interested in composing hymns. And I said, do you have any hymn texts that you would consider like letting me take a look at? And he paused for a minute. And he says, well, I do have one. And he got it out of a file. And he said, this is by Elder Tom, L. Tom Perry's son, Lee. Lee Tom Perry composed the words. And he said, it has been set once before. And we felt that the text is lovely, but the, the, the hymn tune wasn't as singable for congregations as we'd like. And he says, would you like to take a, an, a, an opportunity to set this? And I kind of got this quirky grin on my face, and I said, I don't know why you're trusting me with it. I'm only 20, 24 years old. <laughs> and so he said, I'm saving it because you're supposed to set it. <laughs> and I said, oh, my goodness, okay. And so I actually did set it, and we entered the church music contest, and it won second place in 1981, I believe. And then uh, as things went along, <clears throat> in 1984, my daughter Elizabeth was about to be born, and I got a message from Michael saying, your hymn is okay. It's suited for choirs. We need something for congregations. And he said, Daniel, he says, you can do this. And he says, you have very little time. We're on a short leash here. He says, can you give me something in 48 hours? And I said, oh, well, no pressure, right? <laughs> So I thought I was smart, and I said, I, I gave him three new, completely new settings. So there was the original plus three. And he called me back as soon as he got him and says, no go. He says, I want you to do another one. He said, these aren't, these aren't the ones yet. They're, stumped, they're still, still something else. Well, in that time, my mother-in-law at the time, Sylvia, came to, to stay with us because my wife at the time, Beverly, was expecting our, our firstborn daughter, Elizabeth. And uh, <clears throat> she had come in preparation for that. And I had worked on two more settings with her in the room. And Beverly was lying on the bed. She was just in, oh, poor woman was so miserable at that, in, that, in those days. And uh, she was about a week overdue or so at that time. And um, so she was taking the opportunity to, to lie down for the mo one moment that she could. And uh, I knew that these two settings um, were not the right thing. And so I sat back in a chair and let go of everything, and this melody came. And I thought, okay, I want to jump up and go play it. So I refused to do that just then. And uh, I let it develop a little bit. And then I got up, finally went to the piano and started playing it. And Sylvia said, that's the one. That's the one that's going to go in the hymn book, Dan. And so I sent those three off and that last one. And uh, Michael said, so uh, no go. And I said, you're kidding me. I said, uh, I had such a wonderful spiritual experience with that last setting that I did. And even my mother-in-law commented that, that she felt it strongly that it, that it may be the one. He says, well, it's a really fine setting. And he said, but the music committee said that they're looking for something a little bit different. And I was devastated, completely devastated. So I, <clears throat> I just kind of put the thought away. Elizabeth was born, and I was sitting in, 
in Sacramento meeting wondering what, what this was all about. And finally, I got a phone call, I don't know, a week or two later, I would imagine. <clears throat> and uh, Michael said, well, I need to tell you something where um, your, your hymn has been rejected, as you know. But he said, I kept thinking that we need to put it in the hymn book. He said, I played it for Gerald Otley. I played it for a bunch of other people. They all thought that it should be in the hymn book. And so I fasted and prayed about it. And he says, I'm calling you this morning after that. And he says, I'm going to go into the hymn committee and tell them that the Lord wants this hymn in the hymn book. And that's how it got in. Wow. <laughs> so, and um, it it's a marvelous story because my mother-in-law is honored in the hymn. The hymn tune name is Sylvia's hymn. Her name is, her name is Sylvia. The hymn itself is named as now we take the sacrament. And so each of the tunes in the hymn book also have a tune name that's independent of the title of the text. So her, it, hers is, that's, it's named Sylvia's hymn because of her. Is she alive? She, she passed away of cancer in 1990. I wonder how many of us have sung that hymn. I wonder how many times I've sung it. Sacrament hymns are my favorite hymn, as my wife knows and has become more aware with COVID when it's just the two of us singing the sacrament hymn. I'm a terrible singer, and I can hear myself more. I'm not drowned out by yeah. the congregation, <laughs> but that's one of our favorite songs. Oh, that's, um, you know, that's sweet to know. I For our listeners, I also want to say that some of the stories of some of the things I've composed are written down at a place called hubpages.com. Hubpages.com. And if you just say, if you type in Google Daniel Carter at Hub Pages, I'll come up and you can find the stories to this, to the hymn, to come unto him, to shine for me against our Bethlehem and some of the other favorites. And tell us the name of the two songs that um, are in the children's hymn book if, or song book that you yeah. composed. The, the first one was uh, um, A Young Man Prepared. And that was that lunch meeting that I had with Michael the summer of 1980 uh, was actually a result that resulted in that song. That was the first thing that he wanted me to do. The hymn actually came later. And so I composed this piece and, and he said, well, he said, you have quite a task to figure out how to do this because he said, I don't know how you're going to get 11 year old boys to want to sing. And at that point in time in 1980, Superman was the big theme. It was the big movie theme. So I, <laughs> uh, I've i gotten re uh, responses over the decades. He says, why does that sound so much like the Superman thing? And I said, well, that was actually on purpose. And I said, I hope I didn't completely obliterate any or pirate anything by doing that. It's kind of an imitation, but it it, it is not completely literal like Superman. And uh, But I said, I had to figure out how to get 11-year-old boys to sing. And so um, as I became primary chorister after the children's songbook was published, I, I was in a variety of callings. I was the stake music chairman. I was on the high council. I was in the bishopric. I was choir director since I was 16. I mean, I finally retired as a choir director, I think, in 2015. And uh, that's because of some hearing loss. But um, uh, as I was the, the primary chorister and pianist at two different times, the 11-year-old boys in the back would be making a ruckus. And so I'd go grab two of them by the scruff of the collar of the neck and put them up next to me on the piano. 
and uh, tell them, if you don't behave, you're going to stand up next to her and you're going to learn how to direct music. And of course, that happened instantly. <laughs> I love that. And so um, what I did was uh, I said, I think they need to sing the Blazer class song. What, do you, what about you, sister so-and-so? And the primary president would say, yes, stand up, boys. You're singing now. <laughs> so they learned how to sing my song. <laughs> I love that. Um, you know, on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for your contributions to the church. And I've always thought when someone steps away from the church, we should, I don't think this will ever happen, we should have an event to thank them for all their service in the church. <laughs> um, I don't know, if, but I just, I read a blog post once, you know, that when someone chooses to step away, um, as part of maybe decreasing tension is that we thank them for all the service they've given. Um, the that time isn't... that they've paid, the contributions in their callings, you've given, you know, you've given 40 years since your mission to the church. If you served at 20 and you're roughly 60, so there's 40 plus years of ecclesiastical service plus your this under your church employment that brought spiritual blessings to people. So on behalf of all of our listeners, thank you for what oh. you've done for the the church and helping people come into Christ through music, which is one of the most helpful things in my life to help me come into Christ is the spirit that I feel through music. And, and then I just, I don't want to make you the villain or the bad guy of the world because you felt your path is to leave the church. I just see you as the same human family that's doing the very best you can with circumstances right. I don't know, I, ha I don't deal with or wouldn't know how I'd manage that. And well, so, the, re the reason I had to step away from the church is so that I could heal. And let's talk, that's a good transition, Daniel. Talk about your suicide attempt in 2005. If you want to okay. talk, you could either talk about what led to it or <clears throat> since it had happened, it became the path to healing. Yeah. Well, uh, leading up to it, I think, is important. Um, <clears throat> you know, there's this cognitive dissonance. If you're gay in the church and, and you bury that, um, and it's a part of you, it's going to resurface. And it's not going to resurface just a few times. It's going to be a part of you. And there are some parts of us that we're not to cut out as cancer. We're, we're supposed to embrace them. It doesn't mean that we let them run rampant. It means that we embrace them and that we learn how to negotiate the world and to become better human beings with this. For example, a mental illness. We've got lots of mental illness in the church and throughout the world. Well, we all want to cut it out like a cancer. We say, well, we'd love to be normal. The truth is you're normal. This is what the human condition is. It's normal. So how are you going to manage this so that you can become the best person that you can be, so that you can bless the lives of others. And who's to say that the insights that this mental illness can give you aren't going to bless endless other lives? And so it could be the same way for gay. It could be the same way for uh, transgender. It could be any of those things. Who's to say that this condition that you have or this propensity or whatever, this genetic thing that you have, Who's to say it's not a blessing? That's the fault that we put into it. We're not looking at it right. 
we're not looking, we're looking at it as it's an, as if it were an enemy. We don't need any more enemies in this life. We need to figure out where the love is. We need to figure out where healing is. And so building this cognitive dissonance as a gay man in the church, uh, being married, all I ever wanted to be was a good LDS dad, a good LDS husband, a good LDS brother, all those things. And so I did. I married. And I had two wonderful children. I was married for 23 years, and I actually went into a rebound relationship the second, a second time, and I was married for a year. And uh, I wasn't in... To a woman the second time, Yes, too. a woman the second time as well. And uh, uh, it was during that marriage, and it was going very, very badly, and uh, a lot of that was neither of us were well enough to be in a relationship at that point. And I wound up trying to commit suicide while I was working in the church office building. And so here I am... <clears throat> I'd been in counseling for extreme abuse growing up, severe abuse. I mean, uh, being thrown down the stairs, being thrown against the walls, being punched, uh, knocked out, guns flashing more than once, and uh, being pointed here and there. It was pretty frightening, and it, it created a huge amount of trauma. Um, in addition to which, there were experiences with priesthood leaders um, for example, when I was 16 years old, there was a bishop who called me into his office as a priest and said, the spirit tells me that you've been having sex with girls at school. And I cried. I, I said, uh, no, no. I said, how could this be? I said, you know, and my thought was, first of all, he's going to tell dad and dad's going to beat the crap out of me. And second of all, I'm not even attracted to girls. So how could the spirit tell him that I was attracted, that I was having sex with girls and that it was a spirit telling this when I was really attracted to, to men. It was horrific. It was just, and so I learned not to trust authoritarian figures. And I uh, always second-guessed it. And so I always believe that it's up to me to get spiritual answers for myself. And when I'm confused... I have to check in with the people that I can trust. And so the long story short is this, this cognitive dissonance, this, this tension for all these decades, a, a, a one failed marriage, a second that was going into failure. And uh, I wound up trying to commit suicide. I wound up in the psych ward for a week. Nobody worked. They just thought I was homesick. And uh, so I affectionately referred to it as the mental health resort. And <laughs> put me on a boatload of meds and all kinds of things. And, and I was miserable and it was terrible. And I remember sitting in a, I had separated from uh, the second person that I was married to. And uh, I was in an apartment all alone. It was catastrophic. No money, no nothing. My mother had wired me some money so that I could get this apartment and, uh, I sat in the dark, and I was miserable, and I was wondering why I didn't finish the deed. It was pretty horrific. And so I was at the verge of wondering if I should go ahead and carry out my plan. And uh, for hours, I sat in the dark, and I just cried. I didn't know what else to do. And I, I became so tired 
of this misery and everything that it started finally fading away. And I started letting go of all these issues in my head, the issue of my anger with the church, the issue of the abuse growing up, the issues of my failed marriage, me being a failure, everything just being so horrible. And here I am in, you know, I, all, every penny that I was making was going to pay for attorneys for two divorces now. And uh, it, w- it was catastrophic. It was just, it was just too much to take in. And as I sat there and wrestled with all these terrible things in my head, and that I was better off dead, <clears throat> and let go of these issues, I finally got to a place where it was complete silence. There wasn't anything left. I'd let go of everything. I was in the silence and I just thought, now what? Now what? And the silence turned to stillness. And in the stillness, I wasn't alone. And I knew that I was loved and I had felt this before. Because we all have felt it before, but I felt it at a different level. This was without anything else interfering. And as I um, felt this, I literally said out loud, I refuse to believe this is God. I refuse. Because everything I've been taught about God is that he hates you. He hates you. He hates me, but he loves them. How can that be possible? It's not right. It can't be right. So I refused to make God the image of what every human makes him. And I thought, I don't know what this is, but it's love. And, I, and then I cried because I thought, how in the world am I ever going to get back to this? This is what I need. This is where the safe place is. How am I going to get back to this? And so I had just had this feeling, retrace your steps. What led you here right now? to this love. And so I had to let go. I had to keep letting go. And so every time I would get in these bad, dark places, I had to let go. And it was so much work. It's not an easy process to let go of everything like that because the problems are still left. But the the point of letting go and getting to love is that in love, you feel better. And the minute you feel better, you have new options. Love is a creative force. And all of a sudden, these things will come to you and you'll know how to start solving the tiniest little problems first. And then eventually, the bigger problems will sort themselves out. And that's exactly the way that it works. And so I became a firm believer in, in meditation. I gave up prayer. And I would meditate and I would get to a place of stillness and find love. And I learned that in that, in that space, that if you become love, you don't have to look for love. I learned that there's no separation in all of us, between any of us, for any reason. That this physical existence is a way for us to pretend that we're separate so that we can go explore, so that we can go create, and we can do all these things. We're no longer just sinners looking for forgiveness. We're creators. We're explorers. We're at the leading edge of thought and creativity. 
And God knew this, that the, the universe knows this, and it's all been accounted for. And that's why the atonement is so beautiful. It's so real. It's because it's already been accounted for. And they know that we're going to wander these people, these beings, these, these beautiful gods. And we believe in a plurality of gods in the Mormon religion even. So this, this plurality exists and they're beautiful and they understand us and they know we're going to wander. But it's up to us to reconnect. And the way you do that is you get back to the stillness and connect with yourself. And once you connect with yourself, God is there. It's only your illusion that God ever left you. The only reason that you feel that God left you is because you're not receptive to that vibration of love. But when you reach that vibration of love again, God is always present, always. And so in these moments after this suicide attempt, I decided this is my, this is my route. This is my journey. This is my path. I need to become love and I need to become healing. And in so doing, I liberate everybody else around me to feel safe, to feel love, and to heal for themselves. And that is what I'm absolutely committed to. There aren't a whole lot of other commitments that I make in my life. As far as my involvement in the church, I did remove myself from the church. But I'm actually, the church never came after me for being gay. Well, for one thing, they said they couldn't find me, but I've been in plain sight because I've been in touch with a lot of them since I retired anyway, um, I kind of feel like a little bit of a missionary. They'll come and they'll say, um, through friend, they'll say, um, what does Dan think about this? Or what does Dan think about that? Okay, and so we'll go to lunch and I'll spill all the information and I'll say, for you, it's free. For them, officially, they need to do a consultancy fee. <laughs> <laughs> but the truth is, I love them. They're good people. I actually miss a lot of them, and um, I will always think very kindly and dearly of them. And I don't feel that I have to be directly involved in the church to be the kind of missionary, if you will, to be able to have reasonable conversations about why did we develop this publishing plan and why did we make these global church music publish, uh, uh, policies in the day? And what effect does that have now? And so for them to need clarification once in a while on church music history and policy and so on, I actually find it very comforting and a great honor. And it's not that I want to be a part of the church. It's that it's my culture. It's my heritage. And even if the church excommunicates me, I am forever going to be known as the Mormon composer. <laughs> and that will be the burden the church carries if they excommunicate me. And it will be my burden every time I think ill of the church. So I might as well make peace with it. I might as well embrace it. And I might as well love it with all my heart. It's a really beautiful segment, Daniel. Thank you. You said some really powerful things <clears throat> that have our listeners are going to go back and rewind and listen to a couple times, may write them down. Um, your insights into love and the healing nature of love, your insights into your own self-worth following that suicide attempt. Um, you said some things about God. Um, 
these are kind of my interpretations of what you said. So help me understand. It's sort of like, I believe God could love me the way I am a gay man. Mm -hmm. Um, the God that I'd sort of manufactured in my mind or been taught to me would never likes love someone like me. But right. I recognized he really loves me just the way I am. And that, is that, help me understand if that's correct. Well, to me, it is correct. Um, the thing that I understand about what we teach about who or what God is, is that he's too human. We've humanized him. Humans are really good at humanizing everything. We humanize our pets. We have pet rocks. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You know, if, if you tell a fish to climb a tree, it's not going to climb the tree because it's going to act like a fish. It's like I say to my, my kids and, uh, and Gail and I say to each other, uh, when, when the two-year-olds really start acting up, and I said, yeah, they're acting like two-year-olds. He says, and, and Gail says, yes, but they should be this way or that way. And I said, no, they should act like two-year-olds. <laughs> so we got to reframe if we want to, if we want to get through this. And anyway, and so the point that I believe is that, <clears throat> that we can have peace. It, we can, we can have this cognitive dissonance, but we can still find peace. I was ready to leave the church in 20 and, 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 2005 after the suicide attempt, but I worked for the church for 11 more years because I didn't, I could not build a career or find a job that would pay me any kind of a suitable income that I could live on. And I could barely live on the income I was making by the church, but it would have been worse if I would have quit and tried to do something else. So I stuck with it. And the reason that I stuck allowed the cognitive dissonance between myself and the church and learn how to heal it was that I had to stop finding arguments with the church and f start finding solutions with how I could do my job and feel good as a gay person and filling the world with good music. And I did. I had to put all of my other, my personal things aside so that I could sit in a spirit of love and sometimes revelation with these people and make global church music policy with them and be in harmony with that. They didn't know that I was gay and they didn't care. It was my burden that I was gay. And I, it wasn't fair for me to push that onto them and to feel unloved when they were doing the best that they could. I had to learn so much about that. So much. Done a lot of podcasts, Gail, and I mean, Daniel, <laughs> and um, obviously you being 64, we don't do many podcasts with men or women your age. And there's this feeling of just this maturity because you've been in this space so long and a th uh, just a thoughtfulness about um, your life journey in the context with the church, context with society. You've got children of just love and wanting to find common ground and wanting to heal the role of music to heal. But also there's a message for those that are feeling the cognitive distance you're feeling and at times anger and pain and just how you've traveled that road um, the very best way you can. There's no owner's manual for your road. There's nobody that you can right. point to five, 10, 20 years 
earlier that walked this road. There's no podcast you could listen to at age 50, 40, 30 of somebody that's further down this road. And that's why my heart just goes out to you because you've done so much of this on your own. Yeah, I did. You haven't been able to rely on anybody else to sort of, this is how it works. You, you were closeted until just recently. Yeah. And I just, you know, there's, a, I think if Heavenly Father were here, he'd, he'd be awfully kind to you for doing the very best you can in a very difficult set of circumstances and giving back so much to help other people in the middle of that. And I think there's also a message for, we both get calls of people that are suicide. I took one on um, a few days ago, a young man, early 20s, gay, Latter-day Saint, and just not knowing, you know, just not knowing what to do. And I, my reaction after listening to him, and he said, I don't participate in the church anymore. I want to marry a man. And my reaction to him was <clears throat> to talk about his relationship with Heavenly Father and to see if I could reconnect him to Heavenly Father because I felt like his Heavenly parents, they could be very helpful to him, even if the church isn't his path, that they, just like you have learned, and they're teaching nothing I can do can take me outside of, of the love for my heavenly parents and their desire to help me and want to be in my life. And even if I'm not living Mormon commandments, I sometimes think culturally we've made a feeling, well, God won't love me if I'm not doing everything the Mormon way. So we, like you kind of said, we assume we're not worthy of God's love or Right. That kind of a God we've created culturally would never like me, an LGBTQ person or someone. So I love this story that you're sharing that you found that God loves you. There's one point, though, that I think that, that has to be made here. Um, turning a person back who is in doubt of heaven and God and the church is not pointing them back to the God that they thought they believed in. That's really critical. It doesn't work. They don't know how to trust that God. What what we have to do is we learn we have to learn how to connect with ourselves first. It's a point of discovery, which is what you did after your suicide. That's attack. that's what that whole misery uh, night of misery was about: is figuring out how to connect with me. I hated myself. I hated my thoughts. My thoughts were unsafe. They were violent. They were, you know, they were catastrophic thoughts. So when you can drop all of those away and what I, when you get to the stillness and when the only thing that you know is love in the stillness, it doesn't matter where it comes from. It doesn't matter that it came from God. It doesn't matter if it came from uh, your, your deceased uh, grandmother or grandfather or whoever's shepherding you or your guardian angels. It doesn't matter. You're in a space of love, and that space of love has to be discovery about yourself. If you can discover what you, who you are in that space of love, you'll discover who your higher power is in an instant. Because I threw God away. I could not accept God again. And it, um, you can see um, how emotional I get over this because it was, it was so deep. It was a dark space that I couldn't navigate, but um, because love was consistent, I was able to renegotiate that um, that identity that I had for God, and now I call them beloved. 
what came to me uh, in my meditations. It says, well, I have to call you something. What, what am I going to call you? There was nothing. There was nothing. There was nothing. There was just, just this wonderful stillness. And all of a sudden, I said, you're beloved. You are beloved. So, and, and when I talk to my family and friends, I refer to God. But for me, it's beloved. And so for this young man, you did the right thing, trying to point him back to his heavenly parents. But the, the point here is, it doesn't do any good to point them back to God when they're afraid of God to begin with. We have to find ourselves first, and then we find our connection in the universe. And for the record, I had lots and lots of counseling for just the catastrophic abuse in my life yeah. growing up. And then there was the religious abuse. And I had a long talk with my mother here just recently. And I said, Mom, you know, the abuse that I had at Dad's hands wasn't just Dad. It was religious abuse. It was all religious abuse. That was the trauma in my life. All, it was all religious-based. All of it. All done in the name of God. No wonder I hated God. No wonder. And so I had to reinvent everything from the ground up. And so for all of our listeners out there who are struggling with their, their spirituality, with struggling with their identity, struggling with this hateful God, you're right. You need to question him. You need to question that hateful God. You need to question everything you are taught. But you cannot get away with going into the darkness and facing your greatest fears and finding yourself. That's the ground zero that we all have to get to. And the only mirror <clears throat> that I know, people said, Dan, you're talking like you're kind of almost agnostic or an atheist. And I said, well, I used to say I was a born again atheist, but the truth is I'm not, I'm not at all. But I said, one, and they said, well, you, I'm not even sure that you believe in Jesus Christ. And I said, that's irrelevant. What I believe in is what I believe in. What you believe, what you want me to believe in is what your expectation is. And I said, but the one thing I will tell you, whether Jesus lived or not, his life is the exact mirror that everyone should look into to find themselves. If you find Jesus along the way, that's fine. That's fine. But you have to be able to find yourself. And once you find yourself, you know your identity is God, that you are God with God that you are a manifestation of God, his creation. So it is, as, as we say in Mormon doctrine, we are gods in embryo or whatever, but we are manifestations of gods, and therefore we are as God is. In the, in the most flighty, um, I don't want to say flawed, God did not create us flawed. We are here as a result of this physical existence, which is a fall. This is a fall from where we came from. If we came from perfect love, this is a place for us to experiment and to figure out and to create and to find and get lost and to be found and figure out who we are. And if there is no obligation for us to uh, say that everything happens for a reason, I always say everything happens. It doesn't have to happen for a reason. Everything happens. But the magic part is 
and it isn't magic. The only magic in the universe is love. And it's because grace is tied in with magic, with, with love. And uh, when grace comes in and fills in the blanks that we can't for ourselves, then it feels like magic. <clears throat> so here we are in this existence and we're, we're covered by grace and we can drown in love, but we can't do much until we get back to love. We can wander, we can get lost, we can practically destroy ourselves and other people. But the, the element that we miss is love. That, that's the thing that will prevent us from actually destroying the earth and each other. It's a really beautiful segment. I'm learning a lot. Um, and I think our listeners are feeling the same way. I think one of the takeaways is of that segment is the importance of loving ourselves. Um, and then we realize God loves us and we're lovable, and that it then creates momentum that right. brings us into a much better light. But I love this idea that during this dark, horrible night... <laughs> That you're describing that you've learned to love yourself and just let it all go. It was it wasn't learning to love myself then. It was just letting go. Letting go. It was feeling the love from the original source of love. Uh, and then and then over time, these meditations and this continued counseling and so on. And and I have to say, I got off all the medications. And I've been medication free since 2005. And uh, that was a that was an awful, awful process. Protracted withdrawal, coming off those types of medications is is a really horrific process. But there actually is a protocol. This is hope for anyone who is on medications, and they feel that they're not working. Um, they can investigate a couple of different websites. One is called TrueHope.com, and uh, they will talk about protracted withdrawal when you're trying to wean off these psychotropic and uh, anti-depressant uh, medications, they're extremely, extremely addictive. And uh, But it's possible. It took two years, but I was able to do it. That segment is going to help a lot of people. I hope you continue to talk about your story because, yeah, it obviously can help LGBTQ people, but there's, th there's people that are straight or cis that are going to be very much helped by the things you're teaching, because I just recognize more than I realize are in that same, right. You know, whatever the right vocabulary is, that same spot you were in for different reasons and need some of the things that you're teaching that can bring them hope that things can get better. So thank you for that segment. You're welcome. It's very There's powerful. There's something else about this, and that is that, <clears throat> if I can remember my train of thought, um, I am not anti-medication in any way. Everyone's journey is exactly what it needs to be. And some will need medications their entire lives. Some will not. Some will have long-term brain damage or mental illness, depression, whatever it is, uh, bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever. Um, and they will need to be on medications. But there is a way, if we will look at the imbalances in our bodies, they usually start in the gut. All the, most all brain imbalances start in the gut. And if you address uh, uh, nutrition issues first, 
and uh, become a, more aware of that, you can improve your assimilation and therefore maybe need less medication. And that's something that you'll have to determine with your doctor. Let's talk about your husband, Gail. Sure. Um, you met him close to your retirement. You retired in 2016, I believe in June, and Gail came into your life approximately that same time you were married um, in October of 2016. Yeah. So talk about um, Gail. Introduce Gail to our listeners. And just, you've got six kids between you. You've got Gail's former wife, Nancy, that you're yeah. both close with. Yes. Um, she's very active in the church, from what I understand. And yes, she so is. just this extended family that seems to have come together the very best you can and are doing the very best you can for your six children and your 16 grandchildren. So kind of just start with Gail. Sure. I actually met Gail. you probably gun shy about getting into a relationship. Oh, terribly. (laughs) Um, I actually met Gail in 2012 through a mutual friend. And uh, he was somebody that I really clicked with. And, uh, you know, I I was not out and working for the church. And he's a successful real estate agent. He's had a wonderful career. I mean, he's been doing this for 45 years. He's debating, he's, he's now 68, and he's debating on whether or not he wants to continue to do this. And he says, but if I, if I hang around you all day, you're going to be, you're going to, I'm going to drive you nuts because I'm gregarious and you're an introvert and you like to be alone and write music. <laughs> That's funny. And so um, in 2015, after a couple of false starts of just hanging out and so on, in 2015, um, I sent him an email and just said, you're somebody I really think is great. And I don't know much about you, except you're somebody I want to get to know. And I said, you want to go to lunch? And after a bit, he emailed me back and we went to lunch and we both kind of had stars in our eyes and, uh, we just started hanging out and it wasn't too much longer after that. Um, it was in 2016 and, and uh, we finally got together and I retired and, um, and then there was this, I, I was like, I cannot be in a relationship. I cannot, I just can't. I said, with all due respect, I've been through too many and this is just too much for me. I said, I'm a complete failure at relationships. And, um, he said, uh, he said, yeah, I, I know I, I've heard you. I heard your voice. I, I know what you're saying. And he says, but what do you want? And I said, I want you in my life. He says, okay, then stop worrying about a relationship. Just, just look at it as you want me in your life. And so we went along and uh, it was, I don't know, six months or so into it. I was kind of quiet one evening and he said, uh, what's up? And I said, I, I'm fine. I'm fine. He goes, well, okay. And about 10, 15 minutes later, I went back to him and I said, I I know what's up. And he said, what? And I said, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. I said, I've never been in a relationship where the other shoe hasn't dropped. And I said, and I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of that. Honest. So he put his arms around me. He says, there's no shoe. And he said, this is all there is. What you look, what you hear now, what you see now, this is all there is. And he says, can you trust that? And I said, I'm going to do everything in my power to. And we went along. <clears throat> and uh, 
before too much longer, he said, so if we got married, I went, wait, what? <laughs> and I was, I was quietly freaking out. And he said, well, is, is that okay? I mean, is that a subject we can talk about? And I said, yeah, um, but I'm, I'm really afraid of, of relationships. And he goes, oh, so you're not in one. <laughs> and I go, um, I'm in happy denial, aren't I? And he said, he said, well, if it's happy, then I'm relieved. And so one thing led to another, and uh, we fleshed out the conversation a bit further. And finally I said, so you asked me, he said, if we get married. And I said, I think that's the wrong question. And he goes, well, what's the question? And I said, the question is, would you really, would you really marry me? Would you really? And uh, he wrapped his arms around me and he says, there isn't a thing about you that I wouldn't love, that I wouldn't want to love. And he said, of course. I said, are we going to get married? And he says, he says, I think that's kind of dependent on you. And I said, okay. I said, I think I can get married. And so um, I let it rest. We talked about it every day. We announced it to the kids and they were like, holy Toledo, what's going on here? You know, oh my goodness. And uh, they were all a little bit ambushed, I think. And, um, but the thing that made it work was that uh, Gail's daughter, Mindy, is a world-class musician. She is a voice coach to the stars. And I, I do mean that sincerely. She voice coaches uh, Justin Timberlake. She's done everybody in the business. I mean, literally. She's doing the Lumineers. She's doing, oh, gosh. And so she goes on tour with these people and she's texting and she, she's sending pictures from backstage with the, sometimes the celebrities and stuff. And she always says, if you post these, I will murder you. This is a breach of confidence. Do not post these. <laughs> so we have the little video of Justin um, Timberlake singing happy birthday to Mindy when she turned 40 and, and things like that. So Mindy and I became very close. She... Um, <clears throat> She apparently has been singing some of my music off and on since she was a teenager. And one of the, those pieces is Shine For Me Against Star of Bethlehem. And so uh, Mindy became a cheerleader with Gail for me being in the family. And um, their mother, Nancy, Gail's former wife, met me. And the first words out of her mouth were, I've been singing your music for 30 years. I said, are you serious? And she goes, yes. And she said, it's wonderful. And that from that moment on, Nancy has been nothing but good and loving and kind and inclusive to me. And she is my family. I, she is truly a member of my family. And we are allies, and I love her so, so much. She is the reason why that... Uh, Gail and I have a good marriage and a good relationship with all the children and feel very, very fortunate. Uh, my daughter and her family, uh, they love Gail. My son and his family love Gail. And, um, you know, and we all have varying levels of, of how we interact and how frequently and everything. 
And I don't get to see some of them as often as I get to see others. My son, for example, um, he's a busy real estate agent. He has two autistic sons and they're savants. They're the, the off the charts, chatty type that really are amazing kids. But um, we're coming into learning how to forge our own healthy relationship with each other in each case. And it's really, really, it is wonderful. I did not know, I did not know 10 or 15 years ago that my life could be this happy, that I could have such a wonderful family. I had no idea that I would be able to flourish as a composer. And here I now have a 50% hearing loss, hearing aids and the whole bit. And uh, it's it's the same thing. You have to get to the point of where this hearing loss, people say, oh, it's really a tragedy that you're going deaf as a composer. And I said, well, but it's it's not all bad. What do I want to hear? What do, what do I need to focus on and hear? How is this going to work? And so you have to turn it into a blessing some way. So I just keep working with it until it is. <clears throat> but that's how Gail and I got together. And he is the best thing bar none that has ever happened to me besides my children and my immediate family. And I think that they all kind of rank together, but my priority is every day to make him at least as happy as that he makes me. It's, it's just part of my joy in life. <clears throat> so thank you on behalf of our listeners for sharing that segment. There's, I'm thinking of the young man that I talked to who was suicidal this week. And I, <clears throat> one of the reasons I stepped in this space is to decrease suicide. And I recognize that for younger LGBTQ people, some feel the church can and is their path. Mm-hmm. Um, but some feel they want a life partner and and they don't quite know how to make that work. And so that segment, I think, is a great segment to bring hope to others that that don't have any hope. And I know the way the way that we fall in love is that we have to become the love that we seek. As as I said earlier, the thing I learned early on in all my meditations was you don't have to look for love when you become love. It's profoundly the most transformative thing that I've ever learned in my life. Stop looking for love, become love. You'll see it everywhere, everywhere. And so I just honor your life. I it doesn't threaten my my commitment to the church or my marriage to find to hear about your happy marriage to Gail. Um, I I just I'm happy for you. I want your marriage to succeed. It's clear that you're the happiest you've ever been in your life. Would be my guess. And so that mm-hmm. just makes me happy. That doesn't. And this is not talking to you, Gil. This is just talking to, I mean, Daniel. This is talking to listeners. I've just learned to, keeping my covenants doesn't require me to understand how happy or not happy you are or to somehow think that you can't be happy living a path that's outside the teachings of the church. I just, I sort of just say that's not my job to judge that. My job is to do what you're teaching is to love and support and maybe we all take our cue that are active LDS from your from Gil's ex-wife Nancy. 
Yeah. And here's a woman who's active in the church and she could speak for herself, but you know, she's been married to somebody that marriage didn't work. She's raised kids together. And now her former husband's marrying you and she has no owner's manual for that road, but maybe she does. If she honors the doctrine of love, I think love yeah. is a doctrine. It's not just a Christ-like attribute. It's, it's a doctrine that can bring us all together, the same human family. Yeah. And she didn't sell out anything in our church by, by supporting you and Gail. Well, she honors the, the greatest commandment of all, love one another. So she honors our doctrine to do that. Yeah. She, instead of, she's, and Nancy has had a lot of pain. And I've only been on the periphery to see some of it and to understand what she's gone through in her life. But it speaks volumes about her commitment to love as well, that rather than take a path of being justified or owed something, that she cleared a path of friendship so that she and Gail could remain family, and they are family. It's really critical that people note this. We are still a family. We redefine what the family is and how that works, but we are still a family. And that greatest commandment is what we sacrifice first when we're in pain, when we speak from a place of pain and and trauma and tragedy. But it's the only place to be when you are in trauma or in tragedy, it's to go back and connect to love. And that first and greatest commandment is sacrificed by everyone today. We see it on social media. We see it in the headlines. We uh, neighbor pitted against neighbor, politics against politics, religion against religion. It's ridiculous. It's because we have forsaken. We have lost the our commitment to become Christ-like in love. If we would return to our commitment to become Christ-like in love, those things would fall away. I really agree with that. You have a way with words, by the way. You, Thank when you. you talked about Nancy, you talked <clears throat> about pain, um, and you've been on the periphery of that. So I, I sense the empathy you have. You don't fully know the pain, but you're somewhat aware. But then you use this phrase because of her ability to maybe use the atonement of Christ or whatever she's done to heal enough, this phrase is you've, she's cleared a path for her to allow the family circle, while very different than she thought it would be in her 20s or 30s, the f- she's cleared a path for the family to be close. Yes. And to me, Nancy has is having some of her greatest paydays when she sees her children and her grandchildren um, doing well with all these adults in her in their lives because of she, she what is, she's done. She is a spectacular mom and grandma. I can't even I can't even say that enough. Is she involved with your children? Um, she has. I don't think that she's met my kids yet, and you know that may or that may, may not, not happen. May not happen. Yeah, and um, and that's the fine. one thing that I know about Nancy is that that she is courageous. When she needs to break new ground, she breaks new ground. And she she does it like I do, with fear and trepidation. Until I get my feet under me, I'm going to second guess myself all the time. But the thing of it is, Nancy's surrounded by a lot of love. 
She's surrounded by her children who love her. She knows that I'm her ally. She knows that Gail is her ally. Gail and Nancy exchange the funniest birthday cards. And when they find out that their former spouse had sent them that card to all their friends, go, wait, what? Who sent this to you? And it's, just, it's so funny. It's just charming, you know. But I have a lot of love because, um, because I'm fortunate. I landed in the middle of this. And the only reason I can think that I landed in the middle of this is because I had to change. I had to do the dirty work. I had to do the ground zero work, crawl out of that, that, that terrible, uh, that terrible shell, that, that hole in the ground where all the explosion happened and figure out which way was my, my spiritual North. And I had to do it one step at a time painfully. And I had to have a lot of help I'd have counselors. I had to have loved ones. I had to cry with with my with my siblings, with my uh, my my mother. I had to cry with my own children and ask their forgiveness. And my son, I said I, I had to apologize to him. We went to lunch here a few years back, and I said, "Michael, I'm so sorry that you got stuck with a gay dad." And uh, he reached across the table and uh, grabbed my hands and. He said, I got the dad that I really needed. I said, are you sure? And he got tears in his eyes and he said, yeah. And I said, I can't thank you enough for saying that because I felt like I really cheated you. And uh, so we've covered some ground together. And I got the dad that I needed. What a healing phrase. Yeah. My daughter is my clone. (laughs) She's the female tall version of me. And uh, we think a lot alike and we're, we're close, but we had to do some healing too. And, um, and with the rest of, rest of Nancy or Nancy and Gail's girls, they are so good to me. I mean, I know that I, I had to figure out my own transformation back and, and embrace love in order to get this family that I have now. If I wouldn't have done that, these people would be long gone. They, they would never have shown up. But because I did the work, because I stuck with it, and it was day after day, grueling, grueling, I had to check my thoughts. I had to check my attitude. I had to get rid of my anger and go to these meetings and sit with people in the church office building to make these decisions together in the spirit of unity rather than the spirit of division. And it, it's love. It's just love. And I know I've said that a thousand times in this podcast, but if it's not love, why are we doing it? Why? There's no purpose or point in doing it if it's not love. I listened to a a BYU management podcast that Steve Young did, and he just talked about the law of love and how important that law is in the world, in our church, in our lives, across churches, across all these divisions that potentially appear tribalism. So I encourage people to Google that. It's very similar to what you're sharing with us, Daniel. I'm also struck with this idea that I've always, you're not YSA age, so I haven't ever (laughs) counseled somebody your age about finding a partner, but I've always counseled the YSAs to try to be their very personal best when they find their life partner. That doesn't mean they shouldn't date, you know, until all their problems are solved and they've got all their education done and 
even if they're working through whatever, that they should isolate themselves and sort of perfect themselves. Because, but I do like where you, Gail came into your life at a time when you were maybe your personal best. And, and even though Gail's relationship healed you, because he loved you, I love that conversation where you mm-hmm. said the other shoe's going to drop and he just wrapped his arms around you. Yeah. And that must have been so healing for you. And, and just knowing this, the loyalty that Gail has for you and the commitment yeah. is obviously further in your path of healing. But I love the work you did to get to that point. And that's kind of my message sometimes to younger people, straight or LGBTQ, is especially if you're LGBTQ, often you're so vulnerable and you're needing a connection and you're not your personal best. And I'd, I'd be careful about a relationship. Uh, those can be difficult relationships because you're looking for validation. You're looking for someone right. that can talk to you, someone that can understand. And it may be a relationship that's not healthy for you. It may be a relationship where you're being exploited a little bit because you're vulnerable. And I don't want to make generalities there. It's just kind of a yellow flag as right. you're looking about where you are in your own journey. I think it's important to take care of yourself first. And that that's the things that Daniel's teaching, to love yourself, to go through therapy. Yeah. I think God can have a really important role to f- help you feel love and have his love in, you know, envelop you so you feel good about yourself. And then I think you're in a position to make better choices as you make your way further. Anything, are you okay with that? Or? Yes, very much so. I think you're spot on. Um, and you know, we're floundering. You and I are floundering. We're, we're, we're breaking new ground kind of together as we explore these things. And our listeners are going to be floundering with us. I mean, there, there's no textbook for this. But the one thing I do know is that every relationship that, that anyone is involved in, they need. They're, they're in there for a reason somewhere. And if it's even a, a bad relationship, even if it's an abusive relationship, there's something about that relationship that you needed. And I can't stress that enough. I went through so many decades of abuse with my dad, with, with other kinds of abuse, you know, being bullied. I mean, I was, I was a gay kid in high school, but nobody knew I was gay. I was just, I was kind of, I got called, I was a, kind of a sissy, but yet if I focus on sports, I can, I can nail it. If I really hone my skills, I can do it, but I just didn't have any self-confidence. I was the tall skinny kid, but every relationship that comes to us and my dad is this one for me, I needed him. Wow. I needed him. And it's not about whether or not I forgave dad because I did forgive him before he died, but he forgave me before I forgave him. And here's the crux. Here's the issue at hand. Why did dad have to forgive me when he was the abuser? Because it's the laws of physics. Any kind of exerted force has to have equal exerted force in return. If, if he's going to abuse me that severely, I had to defend myself to survive. I was an abuser too. And when I got to that day in counseling, that was my day of atonement. I cried for months that I was an abuser too. And I couldn't, I had to face it. I had to face it that I treated my dad horribly for 40 years, 40 years. And this may not be the case with everyone who's abused. I'm not going to say that everyone who is abused is an abuser, but for me, it was true. 
And so I got to wear the same shoes that my dad just wore. Just so we're clear with our listeners, you're not talking at abuse for other people. This is just back to your relationship with your dad. Right. Okay. I was abusive to him. <clears throat> and I don't have a propensity to literally abuse other people. I never have. But I had to protect myself. And when you set up that vibration of, of contention and physical abuse and emotional abuse, and it, and it carries on for decades... It's really hard to undo. And so forgiveness is a huge deal. I didn't think I'd ever forgive dad, but I wound up being able to forgive him, he, me. And I found out that in forgiveness, love is only two, without forgiveness, love is only two dimensional. You can say that you love someone, but when forgiveness comes in and you have to own your part of it, they own their part of it, there's a complete liberation that happens. And I was fortunate. It was miraculous that I was able to forgive dad. And so now I have a completely different feeling about him. And, uh, you know, I will, I'll talk to dad sometimes. I think we all talk to people that we love who are, who are, have moved on on occasion. And, um, sometimes the, the, sometimes the, the pot boils over and I'm not in a good space. And I have to get in the kitchen and I have to grab an onion. This is metaphorically speaking. I grab the onion. I start peeling the onion. I cry and I cry and I cry. And I finally get the onion put into the boiling kettle of soup. And then I have to drink the soup because it's healing. But isn't that, that's the irony. That's the complete paradox of the whole thing is that in, in peeling these onions, we can heal ourselves it's okay to cry. It's okay to feel the pain again. You haven't undone forgiveness by being angry yet again at the same person. It's a process. And you're going to spend the rest of your life peeling an onion and forgiving and being happy. And then you're going to wind up being angry about something else. And you're just going to have to accept it and embrace it and work with it. You have a way with words, Daniel. Thanks. Um, obviously, written words that make it into songs and hymn books, but you also have a way of of using vocabulary and your life experiences to heal and bring hope to other people as you share your story. It's a it's a wonderful gift you have, and I hope you continue to. Or, you know, I think ten to twenty thousand people listen to this podcast, so you will heal and help a lot of people. One last question for you, um, then we're coming to the close, and, and I'll give you a chance for any other final thoughts. Before we went live, I asked Daniel a question, so I already know the answer. Why, why do you not want every LGBTQ person that's LDS to leave the church? Um, it didn't work for you. You <coughs> stepped away. Why would you want, why are you okay that some stay? I'm completely fine that our children are in the church and out of the church. Um, it took a while for them. Uh, they said, well, look, Dan, you and dad want us to be able to accept you as gay people, married gay people in our family. He says, can you accept our path if we're in the church? I said, yeah, I, I really can. I can honor your path. And I said, my philosophy is this, do no harm. Do no harm to yourself or any other person. That's, a, that's coming from the place of love one another. The second one is, 
if your present path is good for you and it's good for your family, I am 100% on board. And it doesn't matter if they're agnostic, atheist, LDS, or whatever. Gail and I have chosen to participate in the uh, Episcopal Church at St. Mark's Cathedral downtown. Absolutely wonderful. I mean, I'm known as the Mormon composer there. They've sung two or three of my pieces at Easter Mass, you know, um, a couple of years back, and uh, they were broadcast around the world. I mean, I can't fathom how beautiful this has become. And so I have a foot in with the Episcopalians, and I have a foot in with the Mormons. And then the Father Ray came to me and he says, I have a meeting with the GAs of the LDS Church. He says, can we... uh, can we go to lunch? I, I, I'm not sure how to approach this. And so we go to lunch and I said, well, they'll respond this way. And he goes, what do I do? I said, well, let's think about it. And so we talked about it and so on. And I felt such peace being able to bridge just in the smallest little detail, in the smallest way to begin to help bridge a gap between the Episcopalian church and the LDS church in Salt Lake. I mean, who else gets to do that? And how did that come around? And so I don't have I don't have a prescription for anyone about what their path in life should be. I have friends who've been married for a long, long time that are gay and they've never acted out on being gay. They're LDS and they've private messaged me on social media and different places and said, I'm never going to leave my life, my wife. I love her. I love her dearly. And, uh, and I said, I think that this is the exact right thing for you. I, I, who, who can prescribe anything else for you? This is your path. This is no one else's path. The spirit has to tell you this. I can't tell you this. This is good for you. And so I believe that what we need to do is help each other find the right path a good path, a healthy path, a path of love, healing. Um, I just love that. I was going to look for an Instagram post I made if I, um, but I can't find it real quick and I don't want to drag the podcast down. (laughs) Um, But basically it's this idea that each LGBTQ person needs to find their path and, and we need to honor these paths. So what you just said is very consistent with what I said. Yeah. And what I personally believe, I, as my listeners have known, I invite everybody to stay in the church that's in. I invite outsiders to consider it, but I ultimately leave that up to them and the personal revelation they receive what's right for their life. Mm -hmm. And then I just practice the law of love to support everybody and what they feel their path is. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't threaten my path when someone chooses a different path. And I just love... I love your example of working with the Episcopal Church and and your Brene Brown talks about being belonging is sort of everywhere and this this belonging yeah. that you feel yeah. because you are in all these circles, but it's sometimes hard because you don't really belong. It's just harder sometimes because those that are have one tight circle, it's sometimes almost a greater feeling of belonging than you that sort of has a part of lots of different circles that brings you great joy. But And maybe that's where you and Gail totally belong with each other and you have this marriage. So I'm not sure that's making complete sense, but I just love this unique space you're in. 
I compliment you. You know, you may not like to be complimented, but I just am struck with the maturity and the thoughtfulness, even though there's so much pain that originates in your life from the LDS church, and I validate that, that you haven't turned into this angry person that's, I'm sure you have been at times. Oh, but I was. I think that's I, an example for all of us that want to heal from wherever our source of pain is, that if Dan yeah. can do this, then perhaps I can heal too, and I can move forward in my life in a constructive way, and to use the words of Nancy, clear a path for me going forward to have hope and healing and, and find common ground and bring us together and honor everybody's past, unless it takes away my freedom like ISIS wants to. Yeah. Um, but nobody we've talked about in this podcast <clears throat> wants to take away anybody's freedoms. Right. There's a great deal of love and honor in, in what we say here. And um, yes, I believe strongly. I believe that I'm a better missionary in the world for not just my LGBTQ plus brothers and sisters and cisgender uh, beings. I, I feel like that I'm a better person, that I have a message. I'm just barely scratching the surface of being able to know what I should do next. I mean, uh, in my meditations, this hearing loss was perplexing me, and I spent a year in depression over it and things sure. like that. And uh, finally, I woke up one morning, and it came to me, and it says, who are you to say that you are just going to be a composer with perfect hearing all of your life and have these skills till the day you died? How ridiculous is that? Is there no accounting for age and, and regression of ability? And what are these other things that you keep saying that you want to do? When were you going to get to those? And so I feel like that I can still, I may not be the church's representative, but I am a representative of love and healing. And I think the church is, is with me in embracing that. The church sees the problem. The church doesn't want the problem to continue. I'm in a better place to speak to it more honestly and openly by not being so associated with the church. And I'm more available to understand other people's views and points by associating with my Episcopalian brothers and sisters. And they are so wonderful. They're just the most remarkable people, you know. And uh, I just feel really fortunate. Um, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Daniel? If there's one thing that will help anybody to feel better about themselves, it's this understanding of how vibration works. And that is that if you are in suicidal thought, the only way to get to joy and happiness is by climbing the steps of vibration to get to joy and happiness. There is no leap from suicidal thought to joy. None. You have to reach for the next thought that brings you happiness, that will bring you relief. It doesn't matter what it is. You just reach for another thought that's going to put you in a little bit better vibration than you were there. And that's how you finally get to joy and happiness. And it, it's been 20 years, 20 years since I left my first wife and went through this incredible chasm of vitriol, darkness, hate, 
bigotry, you name it. But I needed it all for some reason or else I wouldn't have, have experienced it. But that's my take. Everything happens. Nothing happens for a reason until we connect the dots with love. And when we connect the dots with love, there's healing, there's acceptance, there's love. There's an entirely different universe. And so if you are floundering, if you are without hope, then take some of my hope and remember that there is love and that there is healing for you and for everyone. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, you sure have an ability to heal people with your words and your music and your example. And I think it's one of your life missions. And I did find my little Instagram posts, so I don't want to detract from... <laughs> what you've just said because it's not nearly as good as what you just said but it's please don't take one LDS LGBTQ person's story and making it the right path for other LGBTQ people each LDS LGBTQ person needs to get personal revelation from heavenly parents for their path let's love our LGBTQ friends because they deserve to be loved not because they choose a particular path that's beautiful. And that's what you're teaching us. And that's, that's what beautiful. sort of some of my personal revelation of meditation, prayer, to sort of understand the best way I can minister and serve in this space. And another thought came to my mind is, it came to my mind when I was driving with my wife and a couple of kids in a car in Hawaii, and that we were listening to music. And I thought to myself, Heavenly Father could have created this earth without music. <laughs> I mean, that's a terrible thought, but it, it is possible. It wouldn't affect our buildings or our economy, maybe to some extent, because people make money off the music. But I just think he knew earth life would be pretty hard. Yeah. And he knew we needed, that was one of the <clears throat> things we needed in our bucket to give us hope and healing. And he has blessed me with no talent to sing or compose or anything, but he's blessed me with the ability to be healed through music. I feel music deeply. I walk every morning to music. It's a big part of my life to help me feel hope and healing and connection with the divine. So it's just the way I'm wired. And so thank you for what, you know, you've done with music and, well, thank you. and any other musicians that are listening that help in any way to bring music to others. It's part of a beautiful thing that I think brings hope and healing and brings us together. So my friend Daniel Carter, thank you for being on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. And if you're hearing this, it means that I pressed the stop button correctly and the start button correctly and the volume worked. And so thank you as we shift to a new um, platform here to host our podcast. Mm -hmm.